1: Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like since it was so long ago, 2008, the character was kind of a female at first, and we changed it to a male because I was the person reading it in first person. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that so I hope you don't hate me for that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually understand that. No, What I understand is that forms are different. It's like uh, I, I get so angry at writers when they say, oh, they didn't make the movie the same way as the book. And I'm like, okay minimum if your movie your book got made into a, a movie um, minimum 13,000 people worked on that movie mm-hmm. over from the beginning to the end it, there's no way it can stay the same it's a different form mm-hmm. or as my friend Kevin J. Anderson always says he says they can make my book into a musical on a submarine I don't care <laughs> <laughs> my book is still on the shelf
3: Drabblecast Director's Cut Special Sin with Christine Catherine Rush Drabblecast Director's Cut Specials are a regular monthly feature here in the Drabblecast, where in part one, we rerun a previous Drabblecast story uncut, and in part two, I sit down and interview the author in a Director's Cut commentary setting, where we re-listen to the story together, and you get to know the story and the writer on a whole new level. In honor of the Drabblecast's 8th annual Women and Aliens Month here in March, I chose one of my favorite stories from very early on in the Drabblecast's history, a story called Sing. In part two of this Director's Cut special, Chris and I talk about everything from writing and editing to the use of pseudonyms to world building
1: and, of course, women in science fiction and fantasy. Hope you enjoy.
3: down the road he was big but he weren't mean i don't think he ever hurt nobody before i first met him. he called himself dirk and the name fit because he looked like the daggers children use he was long and thin with only two arms and two legs but he was strong and he moved like he owned the world, or at least a small part of it. I used to walk past his place a lot. It was the strangest place I ever seen, all shiny and silver, but the lawn was real nice. He kept the flowers well cropped. Sometimes these strange sounds echoed around the silver and kept me away. Uh, Most of the time he'd sit right outside his door and blow air through a hollow tube, it made the most awful noise I ever heard, but he seemed to like it. One day he called me over, sat me down, and showed me his tube. It had a bunch of little holes punched in it. I thought maybe he wanted me to take it back to my dad, because my dad was good at fixing all kind of things, but Dirk said no. He had something else to ask me. Would you... He asked like he was scared I'd say no, even before I heard the question Would you teach me how to sing? Well, I'd never heard the word sing before, and I told him so. He kind of frowned and said it was the only word he couldn't find a translation for. That word and a couple others he called related, as if words could share blood like people do. I can't teach something, I don't know what it is, I said to him. and He started laughing then. <laughs> Child, you sing all the time. When you're walking, when you're eating, even when you're laughing. You people make the most beautiful music in the entire galaxy. So I came here to learn how to do it. I told him I sure didn't know what it was, and I got to thinking that... Maybe he was a little crazy somehow. Not scary crazy like some folks can be, but just plain nutty. Wacky enough to make most people uncomfortable. Look, back where I come from, I'm one of the most famous musicians in the world. But I can't do half of what you people do. You make the experience of two millennia sound like the tinkering of children. I want to use your songs, the way Copeland and Sibelius used folk tunes. But first I gotta know how you sing. (laughs) You're not helping me, I said. If this sing is something I do all the time, like breathing or blinking, how come I don't even know about it? That's the big question. None of you people seems to know what you're doing. It's driving me nuts. Everybody has their own personal melody, which they play every day with a different variation. It's like gypsy music, never the same. And I'm the only one who can hear it. I got a little scared there when he said he was going nuts. You never know what someone named Dirk would do when he went crazy. So I picked myself up off the flowers and moved away a little, telling him I had to go somewhere when I really didn't. He said that was okay. I should come back when I didn't have anything better to do. I went home then and told my dad about the awful broken tube, and he said that maybe I should stay away from Dirk, because Dirk weren't like other people. No matter what my dad said, I planned to go back there, because I thought Dirk was pretty interesting, even if he were strange. But I didn't get to go, because the next day was the day that the first dead body turned up outside of Dirk's place. It was the body of Rasty the Sailor. Rasty had been the most romantic person in town. He sailed on air currents, and sometimes if he were feeling nice, he'd take a handful of us along. Ain't nothing so smooth and fine as gliding along with the breeze, letting the air dip in and out of your pores. But our chance to sail was gone with Rasty, because he was the only expert sailor our little town had. He was lying in the lawn, crushing a nice poppy group and not the people who lived there before made. The Poppies had soaked into Rasty's skin. All the juices in his body had dried up, and his wings had gone blue like he couldn't get no breath. Well, there weren't no broken bones or nothing, so even though it looked like he crash-landed, most people were saying he didn't. We just picked him up and carried him off to the place of grass so he wouldn't decay and ruin any more flowers. And nobody said nothing to Dirk or to anyone else. We all went home and mourned the freezing of Rasty's soul. Dirk was around, same as usual that day, and we was all surprised because there ain't no such thing as a murder without a suicide. There's just so much passion and violence going on that the souls intertwine. And when one soul freezes over, the other turns to ice too. So we all knew that Dirk didn't kill Rasty. And because there weren't any other bodies around, the town elders went to the place of grass to study Rasty, hoping he hadn't flown over another town and brought a plague back with him. The elders hadn't figured anything out yet, when another dead body turned up on Dirk's lawn, in the same spot as Rasty. Nobody was too surprised when they found out it was Mag-Tana. She'd been poisoning herself for years, sprinkling dried parsnips over everything she ate. I admit, I tried parsnips once or twice, and the rush they give is mighty nice. Everybody knows those things are addicting, and they'll kill you if you ain't careful. And everybody knew Magdana weren't careful. That was pretty much it, until the night Dirk called me over from the side of the street. You know, I think I got it all figured out. Your ear can't hear certain pitches. That's why you walk around so oblivious to the sounds you make. <laughs> like usual, I didn't know what he was talking about, so I just nodded and pretended I did think I fixed it. I jury-rigged the playback on one of my recorders so that everything will be in your frequency. I can play your song for you, if you like. Well, I thought that sounded just fine. It'd been bugging me for days what them related words of his meant, and I was pretty glad I was finally going to find out. He took me inside his place, and it looked as strange as he did. There were wires and metal all over, and more hollow tubes, some made from wood, and hollow boxes with strings. He sat me down on this platform with four legs that he called a chair, but (laughs) it didn't look like no chair to me. I felt kind of funny in there, with all that strange stuff, and so I asked him a question. You done this with anyone else? "'Sat them in here and made them listen? I-, "'I guess,' I said, not knowing really what I meant at all. Uh, "'No, I put out a directional mic and recorded them while they were passing by. "'I didn't think of asking them in. "'I played the songs back on my outside speakers, but I don't think anyone heard. "'He was talking kind of odd-like, and I remembered him saying how things here was driving him nuts.' and I kind of got a little scared. What you mean, recorded them? I asked, and he didn't answer. Just touched one of them pieces of metal with the wires all around it. It made a funny little high noise, and then I saw Rasty right in front of me, leaning against a metal thing and talking like he always did. Only I knew it weren't Rasty, since he was dead. It had to be a frozen part of his soul. I ain't never heard of nobody seeing a frozen soul before, and I was afraid it might freeze me, so I screamed real loud. Dirk hit the piece of metal, and Rasty went away. What's the matter? That was Rasty. He smiled then and said, Yes, Rasty's song. Isn't it lovely? It's one of the best. So free and happy. "'You got Magtana too, then?' "'Her song has more melancholy in it than all of the others. "'It tears my heart.' "'Then he sat in one of those odd chairs and looked right at me. "'But yours is the best, my very favorite, "'so light and innocent and warm.' If you just sit a minute, I'll record it. It's soundproof in here, and I'll get even better quality on you than I did on the others. No. I got up out of the chair and ran for the door. You're not gonna do nothing to me. You froze their souls, and now they're dead. And I don't want to die like that, with clogged pores and no breath and no juices and a soul that can't change when I do. He put his hand on the door and stood in my way. He looked real upset. I'll, I'll let you go. Just tell me, who died? Rasty and Magtana. We found them in your poppies. How come nobody told me? Because we thought it didn't have nothing to do with you. Your soul was alright. Nobody murders and lives. Except you. But all I did was... Record them. Recording doesn't hurt anyone. I tried to inch around him real slow. All I know is that Rasty's soul is froze, and he's dead. And you bring me in here and show me a part of Rasty that don't exist no more. Dirk was staring at his metal stuff. We recorded hundreds of you off-planet, and nobody died. Except... We went over to one of the metal boxes and pulled papers out from beside it. I moved closer to the door. I didn't want to run in case he turned one of them boxes on me. Playback. He died after playback. Oh my god. He got out of my way. He stared at his metal stuff and water started running down his cheeks. Oh my god. I opened the door and let myself out and went running to the town elders to tell him it weren't no plague at all, but Dirk and his funny hollow tubes, and we all decided we'd have to make him leave. So we went back to his place in a big group, but he was gone. His place, his tubes, his metal, everything was all gone. There was just a big flat spot in the flowers where his place used to be. We searched all over for him, but we never did find him, and Rasty and Magtana stayed just as dead as they were that morning in the poppies. But at least, the rest of us was alright. And even though I'm old now, I still wonder sometimes what it is about the Sing that makes one soul freeze without freezing another. The only reason I can think of why Dirk didn't die when he murdered those two is maybe because Dirk could hear the sing, and hearing the sing meant he didn't have a right and proper soul. And me, sometimes in the time between twilight and darkness, I miss Dirk and his strange tubes. I catch myself dreaming about what it would be like to have him turn his metal things toward me. After all, he did say he was going to do me different. I would have loved to see my soul. But mostly, I just feel sorry for Dirk. He was stealing souls and keeping them in a box. You can't keep a soul in a box. You gotta wear it proud... It's got to be yours, not someone else's. I hope Dirk knows that now. And I hope he learned to use his tubes to block out the Sing. Maybe that way his soul will come back, and he won't have to run away to strange places searching for it. Most of all, I wish that Dirk would come back here so I could tell him that I'm sorry. Sorry. I shouldn't have run away after I screamed. I should have stayed and helped him find what part of his soul he was missing, and I didn't. I wonder if that means that my song ain't light and innocent and warm no more. It bothers me that I ain't got no way to find out.
1: I'm here with Christine Catherine Rush, author of the fantastic story that you just listened to from episode 53 all the way back in February 2008. Christine's uh, an award-winning mystery, romance, science fiction, and fantasy writer. She's written many novels under various names, including Christine Grayson for romance, Chris Nelscott for mystery. Her novels have made the bestseller lists even in London, and have been published in 14 countries in 13 different languages. Her awards range from the Ellery Queen Readers of Choice Award to the John W. Campbell Award. In the past year or so, she's been nominated for the Hugo, the Seamus, the Anthony Award, and several others. She's the only person in the history of science fiction to have won a Hugo Award for editing and a Hugo Award for fiction writing. Chris, it's great to have you. Thanks for taking a minute to listen along to the story and talk about it with me. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for asking me.
1: Oh, absolutely. Our, our listenership has always been a big fan of yours, and you've done some uh, several other stories on our show that people have really been just uh, bananas over, so glad to oh, have
2: good. you. Oh, good. <laughs> That's good to hear. That's always good to hear.
1: I wanted to actually start with your editor work, um, that last part of your bio there. You were the editor of the magazine of science fiction and fantasy for a number of years as well.
2: Yeah, actually, the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction.
1: Max, magazine of Science Fiction and Fantasy, right, yeah. And, no, uh, fantasy, uh, fantasy and fantasy science, science Fiction, fiction. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I'm just such a science fiction fan that I always place it first over fantasy. Oh, I
2: know. But that's, you know, it's actually, the name is, they're very precise, and, and it has an ampersand in the middle. It's There's no and, it's an ampersand, so...
1: Wow, I could, right. I mean, I could tell you were the editor of this zine.
2: <laughs> I was, and it was really important to get it all just exactly right. <laughs> yeah, I
1: know. I know as an editor too. That the shit always rolls uphill. So it's, yeah, it does. You know, but it's I'm a, still a...
2: editing too. I'm I'm editing an anthology series called Fiction River. I'm editing a bunch of other things as well.
1: Fiction River's kind of your main current project with editing?
2: Um, yeah, we're at uh, it's an anthology series and we're at I believe 25 now. Wow. Yeah.
1: Were you the founding editor of it?
2: Uh, my husband, Dean Wesley Smith, and I are. Yeah.
1: That's fun. Do you find as a as a writer, um, anything that's peculiar or interesting about being a writer and an editor?
2: Oh, I, I've always kind of done it hand in hand, but I, I'm a reader and a writer, you know, so they kind of go together. And really what editing is about for me is about sharing things that I like, not about correcting other people or, you know, making it Um, you know stories perfect or something for me it's about oh I like this I bet other Mm -hmm. people will like this let's share it and the years I didn't edit I actually missed that
1: Mm. what years have you not edited
2: well I quit um, I retired young from (laughs) FNSF in 1997 and uh, I think it went all the way up until about 2011 before I started editing again
1: were you focusing on novels then
2: I was focusing on everything I yeah. just figured you know um, I had no real venue for writing and I didn't want to work for anybody else mm. so now I'm not I'm, I'm doing that's my own project so mm. it, it's much nicer and I just I, the experience of working for the publisher of FNSF was shall we say not pleasant mm. um, and so because we always butted heads and uh, it was just it was six years of butting heads and I just didn't want that again so i waited until I was in the circumstance to be able to do my own thing.
1: Yeah. Well, um, you know, MSF and F as I like to call it <laughs> has been been around for <laughs> for a long time. It's one of those in the canon of like amazing stories and weird tales. I think it started like in the 40s, right?
2: 1959.
1: 50s. Wow. I mean, so it went through a lot of changes. Oh, in...
2: 1949. 1949. 1940. First issue was 1949. But barely. Yeah. and then it became 1950.
1: So it has an amazing uh, history and breadth and the nineties were probably a pretty interesting era to be an editor in because of the fact that, you know, like print was going through its first uh, scene, the death throes coming up. There's all sorts of challenges with print media that at that point, and it only got worse from there. But what were some of the things that you faced as uh, the editor of such a a big historic zine?
2: Well, the the publisher kind of oversaw everything. Part of it he oversaw, I think, was because I was female, because he didn't do it with my successor at all, who was younger than me and had less experience when he came in. But, um... You know, so I think that was part of it. I think Mm -hmm. part of it too was that um, the stuff that's being published now, the the things that are, you know, people are talking about diversity and Mm -hmm. and making sure that we have um, LGBTQ stories, we have stories about, you know, people of color. Well, I was Mm -hmm. doing that and uh, I was butting heads a lot with the publisher (laughs) trying to, you know, buy stories that were current for their time but also current for now. Um, And uh, it it got to be a joke on his side, at least. He said to me at one point, he said, I always know if you fight me over a story, it's going to win an award. And I kind (laughs) of I kind of wanted to say and I couldn't because he was my boss, but I could have said, you know, don't you think that's kind of a clue?
1: Yeah, and the compliments maybe even. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: And that's why I'm one reason I'm glad to have you on this particular month. You know, you you were clearly a a big time player in this zine as far as uh, the history behind all the editors before you being male and some of the challenges that, that came with that the
2: baggage I would
1: say that came with that.
2: Yeah, there was a lot. But you know, there's a lot more women in science fiction than science fiction gives women credit Absolutely. for. Absolutely. Yeah. The thing is they get they get forgotten. You know, I don't know why people don't talk about Lee Brackett more, uh, mm-hmm. considering she influenced Ray Bradbury. She wrote more than almost anybody else in the field. And, and she wrote, she won an Oscar mm-hmm. for Empire Strikes Back for the screenplay. And, you know, so it's like, you know, women. Science fiction.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I'm always amazed that people don't know James Tiptree Jr., uh, which we just ran one of her stories, We Who Stole the Dream, and had to, you know, kind of finagle the rights away from the estate. And then they, oh. you know, that that's not anywhere else on the internet in text. I'm like, why? That would be everywhere if it was a male probably. You know that's such a monumental story, and she's such an amazing uh, person with amazing biography. Why are we not making a movie about this person who was a CIA agent and, and like, you know, in the, the military, and then went on to raise chickens and agriculture and all sorts of stuff? And thought that we really needed to to feature this year as a, a writer who inspired many others, and everybody from Philip K. Dick to Harlan Ellison were calling her the big deal back then. You know, and they didn't well, even she know she was, was a, a big
2: deal. Yeah. I remember when she died; it was it was stunning for the whole entire field. I mean, it was like the world stopped for a day yeah. because nobody expected it,
1: you know. What was it, the mid-80s or so, right?
2: Yeah, well, it had to be early, like late 80s, maybe mm-hmm. about 1990. I don't know the exact date, but I know where I was living at the time, and, and I had moved moved to Oregon in 1986, and I was in my apartment in Oregon, so, um, and I was only in that till 1990, you know, but I remember that day. It was, it was astonishing. I was like, wait, no, Tiptree can't die. She's really important. She can't die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I get that because, you know, important people die, but apparently not when I was in my 20s. <laughs> That's
1: true. Well, it was such a crazy and gruesome death, too. And I, I, the quote that strikes me that I read on our podcast was she was once quoted as saying, I, I dream of oblivion like other people dream of good sex. Mm -hmm. that is the mind of somebody who writes disturbing fiction and is capable of grasping a lot of different stuff and darkness, you know, that was so inherent in in her writing. And and it's not afraid to go places and say what it thinks.
2: One of her first sales, I, I did a book called, um, women of futures past, which is, um, about the women in science fiction. It's, it's, um, You know, it's got an essay up front showing how many women actually were in science fiction because I was I get so mad when the younger generation comes in and say they were the first generation to do X. And I'm like, no, you're not. Mm -hmm. You just don't understand that the women of the past got shunted aside in the histories. Mm -hmm. They didn't get shunted aside from the magazines and the anthologies, but the histories of the field left them out. And so I was doing a corrective and I put a tip tree story in there but I didn't want to do one of her gender-based stories because mm-hmm. that's what everybody knows her for. Right. Instead, I found one of her very first publications which is it could have been written today. It's about a plague that gets let loose in an airport. She does it um in about 2000 words mm-hmm. and it is one of the scariest stories I have ever read. Um and it, it I think we were the first ones to reprint it. I'm not sure but What's the name wow. Of it? I don't recall the name of the story, and it's not in front of me. Um, But, uh, you know, it's in the name of the volume that I have it in that I edited. It's called Women of Future's Past. It came out about two years ago.
1: Yeah. Wow. I'll look into that. Um, That's one of the reasons that we wanted to publish that story, too, is it wasn't gender-based and it wasn't something everybody knew already. You know, it was like a space opera that has a kind of cool twist ending in it. And um, I just hope more people can, can experience her breadth of writing. She was very prolific.
2: Her first short story sale was to The New Yorker.
1: Her first was that's amazing to me.
2: Yeah, and it was I, I don't remember if it was under her real name. It was under maybe her real name at the time because she changed her name a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, she was she was just astonishing, and she wrote all over the map. You know, but we only remember there was a there was a period of time when the anthologies about women were only about women and gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been very frustrated by that too because women write things other than about being female and about you know being bisexual. We mm-hmm. write about Um, you know, we write space opera, we write military fiction, we write, um, about aliens. We write all kinds of stuff, including, you know, our founding mothers like James Tiptree. She Mm -hmm. wrote about all kinds of other stuff too. And, and, uh, you know, I hate that that's kind of getting lost. Of course, I'm on my soap opera, uh, my soap opera now, my (laughs)
1: soap soap opera box,
2: box. (laughs) my soap opera.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was going to ask you to, uh, that you were saying that. I know another particularly amazing writer who has uh, several different pseudonyms, as I read in her bio a few minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what, is the, um, what is your take behind pseudonyms? And I wonder how it compares to maybe James Tiptree, who also wrote his Raccoonish Sheldon, which has got to be the most badass pseudonym ever. Raccoon. I know. Isn't that yeah.
2: amazing? Well, for me, um, you were talking about the difficulties in the 90s with print and everything else. Well, that was the height of my traditional publishing career. I'm mostly independently published now. But um, I, uh, in order to – it was so bizarre. Um, computer ordering with traditional publishing means – and it varies from genre to genre. It means that you know they basically order to net. So the previous – whatever the sales of your previous book were is what they order for the next book makes building a career very hard and kind of silly Hmm. and so science fiction if you sell 30,000 copies in science fiction that's a great sale and if you sell 30,000 copies in romance your career is over Hmm. and if you sell 30,000 copies in mystery you're kind of a mid-list writer so um you know I wanted to write in all those genres and if your previous book is what they order to net then, you know, if I wrote a science fiction book after I wrote a romance book, I was tanking my science, my romance career by doing it under the same name, so that's why I had so many different names. The upshot of it is is that I was lucky enough, fortunate enough that they all became successful. so mm-hmm. once I became a hybrid writer, doing my own novels and you know ind- independently publishing them through a company that we founded, my husband and I, um, I now have to work to keep these careers going under different names. It's not what I would have chosen to do if I'd started in 2010 or 2011. I think mm-hmm. I would have written under the same name. And now I tell writers if they're going to write under pen names, unless they have a reason, like James Tiptree did have a reason, um, you know, her career and, and a whole bunch of other privacy reasons that mm-hmm. she wanted to keep her name private. But unless you have a reason like that or you write, you know, children's literature and erotica, um, I would say, you know, use your own name or variations thereof so that the readers can find you.
1: To what extent do you think that um, Tiptree's pseudonyms were based on career or based on, uh, you know, I think she was trying to get a PhD in psychology around then. And I can totally see why somebody would want to have that. But that versus um, wanting to be a successful writer and needing a man's name for that.
2: Well, I don't know how much the man's name thing uh, influenced her. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know she thought it was going to be a, a big deal, but you know they, she did have to protect her PhD in psychology. I, I had another writer friend in the 80s who was a psychologist, and she was quite worried about the same thing because – you could get sued. Even if you wrote a story about somebody with obsessive compulsive disorder, even if it wasn't about one of your patients, one of your patients could have thought it was about them. And I, you know, I, I can understand Mm -hmm. if you're a doctor or somebody like that, having that with, um, James Tiptree, initially she was trying to keep her, uh, the CIA and, and the other government agencies she worked for from knowing why she, um, You know, what she was doing on the side. Um, That's the same with Catherine Moore, C.L. Moore. She did the same thing. She was working for a bank in the uh, 1930s and it was the Depression and she uh, needed the work and she was terrified if they found out that she was writing for pulp magazines, which didn't have a good reputation at the time, that they'd fire her on ethics. So that's why she took. C. L. Moore. It's not because she was ashamed of being female, or women weren't getting published, or that she thought men could, were the only ones who could get published. It was that she didn't want her boss at the bank to know.
1: <laughs> wow. So some of those truths still hold true today, you know. I mean, people have. It's the internet. It's the age of anonymity, and and you know, it's you're able to do some of that kind of tinkering with your name and identity, be more daring with your stories if you have a different name.
2: I know a lot of writers who do that, and and I don't blame them. I mean, if you have family issues or you know you're worried about people are going to scope you out um why not write under a pen name
1: let's talk briefly about your your journey with writing and your process and like what you do when you sit down to write a story like sing
2: i usually get an image when i start a story and i write it down and try to figure out what it means and go from there um often the image comes with a voice and i used to work in radio so Mm. um You know, I get sounds and voices and I and I just write it down. I'm much more interested in finding out what's going to happen next than I am in outlining and plotting ahead and getting things, quote unquote, right, because I want it to unfold just like a story would unfold to the reader. It's much more interesting to me as a writer.
1: What would you say would be um, like your arch nemesis challenge in writing, like your roadblock? The one thing you're like, God, I got that writer's block again or, or whatnot. Or is it noise in the house or, you know, what struggles do you deal with as a writer?
2: Actually, I don't have enough time. Mm. Um, I really have more projects than I suspect I'll ever be able to get done. And, you know, in my head and, and new ones come every day. And so, uh-huh. it's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. Which is which is good. I'd rather be that writer than the one who only gets one idea. But at the same time, is like, oh no, when am I going to get to that? Mm-hmm. My lists go on forever.
1: So you're kind of at a point where you're evaluating um what to say no to so you don't your lists don't get bigger and bigger like what's going to be lucrative what's going to be worth your time
2: i never think of what's going to be lucrative um mm-hmm. i have never thought of that no i don't write for money um i write for the joy of it because there's so much other stuff you can do for money i mean even in writing i mean i could go i got many offers to go work in hollywood and aside from the fact that i don't play well with others mm-hmm. um i could have made in the early years way more money there than i ended up making on fiction mm-hmm. but um, you don't have total control when you're. I'm a control freak. When you're in in Hollywood, you don't have that kind of control. You're working with others. You know, they may want to take your cat character and change him into, you know, a dog or even a an human. Um, and you know, stupid stuff. And um, I'm just not. I'm. I didn't want to do that, but I did look at it. I looked at it all, and I'm just happier writing my own stories in my own time.
1: I feel almost bad now about. I think in Sing. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like since it was so long ago, 2008, the character was kind of a female at first, and we changed it to a male because I was the person reading it in first person. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that so? I hope you don't hate me for that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I actually understand that. No, what I understand is that forms are different. It's like uh, I, I get so angry at writers when they say, oh, they didn't make the movie the same way as the book. And I'm like, okay, minimum, if your movie, your book got made into a, a movie Um, minimum 13,000 people worked on that movie Mm -hmm. over from the beginning to the end. There's no way it can stay the same. It's a different form. Mm -hmm. Or as my friend Kevin J. Anderson always says, he says, they can make my book into a musical on a submarine. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) My book is still on the shelf. Right. Actually, I I do recall when I was writing the story, I was trying to think if I could tell it without gender. Um, And I couldn't think of a way to do it at that point in time, the way that I was telling the story. So... You're right. Gender was pretty fluid in that story.
1: Yeah, and maybe I just interpreted it as a as a, a female alien. But no, I mean,
2: it was it was female, but because that's what I settled on. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I planned to read it myself, so um, I, I kind of wrote it as a performance piece for me. And uh, you know, I was still working in radio when I wrote it, and I thought, oh, maybe I'll do that someday. So again, I have a female voice, so
0: <laughs> <it's the> same <laughs> Can't decision <change>. you made. <laughs>
1: Can't change that. Awesome. Well, yeah, let's jump into this thing. This is episode 53 of Drabblecast, uh, Sing by Chris Rush, uh, back in
3: 2008. Sing by Christine Catherine Rush.
1: Oh, I just wanted to start. I remember this is one of the first stories that um, I did a soundtrack to, and that was the theme for our protagonist. It pops up and it combines in other ways, but it was fun when I was putting a, a soundscape boy, behind it. There was this guy well, it makes
2: sense with road. since we're talking about music
3: throughout yeah. this whole thing. Mean. I don't think he ever hurt nobody before I first met him.
1: He a chainsaw sound effect for that and kind of blended it in with the music. I wanted like something dad, gritty to, to open it up, you know?
3: Mm-hmm. He was long and thin with only two arms and two legs. But he was strong, and he moved like he owned the world, or at least a small part of it.
1: What about, so I think I made the creative decision to give this thing a southern kind of Louisiana Louisiana accent.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Did I make a bad decision there, Chris, or what do you think about that? I don't know where it came from.
2: Well, I never thought of it as a southern accent, but it, it was an accent. I just wanted to show that the character spoke differently than we do.
3: Mm-hmm. sit right outside his door and blow air through a hollow tube it made the most awful noise i ever heard but he seemed to like it one day he called me over sat me down and showed me his tube it had a bunch of little holes punched in it i thought maybe he wanted me to take it back to my dad because my dad was good at fixing all kind of things
1: so this is a flute he's There's referring to gold. i'm imagining yes
3: There's
1: something else to ask me Are yeah. you a
2: musician by the way
1: Yes. <laughs> oh, what's your primary instrument?
2: Well, flute was. Um, I played, oh, I think, 14 different instruments by the time I quit. Um, wow. Most recently, piano. We just actually, we moved to Las Vegas just recently, and I sold my piano. But other than that, you know, I, I, I dabble. I don't play. You have to be pretty serious to play, and I have writing to do
1: yes yeah. you wear a lot of hats you know i do <laughs> well just knowing that that's a flute and that this alien interpreted it as a broken tube is just glorious to me you know the, the misunderstanding there is wonderful between the cultures
2: well i'm glad that it's clear because that was part of what i was trying to make I, you know writing the story on one level where it's clear to the alien and on another level it's clear to the humans reading it what we're talking about and that that was it was tricky
1: yeah, I mean, it's so. that's what I was talking about, the world building that you drop in there. There's a reference to the alien, uh, the name Dirk, and uh, how that's, oh, it sounds like one of the daggers we use, you know, like, that's just, there we go. Now we know that there's a word called Dirk in the vocabulary of this race, you know, and there's another line talking about um, the, when they get frozen, the wings are blue, like they can't breathe any air, and you're like, wow, how do they breathe air? But it's the whole show, don't tell thing where you're kind of imagining for yourself, just opening that door for the the
3: listener. Mm-hmm. You make the experience of two millennia sound like the tinkering of children. I want to use your songs the way Copeland and Sibelius used folk tunes. But first I got to know how you sing.
2: Yeah, I was was thinking about just the different ways that, you know, basically cultural appropriation in some ways, but he, he took it a little too extreme. He just didn't know what happened.
1: Artists seem to want to do that all the time and under that I mean I guess it does cross a line at some point for cultural appropriation
2: I think it's okay if you understand what you're you're doing and you treat it with respect Mm -hmm. Um, But he didn't understand what he was doing.
1: Yep, and it cost lives. It
2: did
3: (laughs) You never know what someone named Dirk would do when he went crazy. So true I picked myself up off the flowers and moved away a little telling him I had to go somewhere when I really didn't he said that was okay I should come back when I didn't have anything better to do I went home then and told my dad about the awful broken tube and he said that maybe I should stay away from Dirk cuz Dirk weren't like other people no matter what my dad said I planned to go back there cuz I thought Dirk was pretty interesting even if he were strange but I didn't get to go cuz the next day was the day that the first dead body turned up outside of Dirk's place?
2: Yeah, it there I the go boy. mixing mystery and science fiction, even in an early story.
1: It's true. Oh, that is such a good point. Yeah, I mean, I was also gonna draw a, a parallel to Tip Tree there, like you know, this whole sex and and death thing. You got mystery and death kind of as your thing.
2: Oh, who knew? <laughs>
1: yeah, well, can you even do mystery without somebody dying, though? You know?
2: Yeah, yeah, you can do things like fraud and and. Um... You know, those kind of crimes, mm-hmm. financial crimes and everything else, because really mystery fiction is crime fiction, but it tends to go toward murders more than anything else.
1: Yeah, it's like deeper spiritual death or ethical death.
2: <laughs> well, you can do that, too, but then you really wouldn't have a mystery because villains, they automatically have some kind of ethical death going on.
1: Well, that's a, it's such an interesting parallel to this, though, where physical death is tied into that spiritual death, you know, with, with song. I mean, a lot of people in our forums pointed out that hearing your own song, which is like a soul song, it's your soul, essentially, um, kills you. Yeah,
2: yeah. You, it's like looking in a mirror if you're a Gorgon, you know. You, you see yourself and, whoops, that's the end of it.
1: That's. Uh, I think that was one of the things that I drew from the story that I really loved about it. Um, it, it really reminds me of kind of like, uh, you know, how early recordings kind of killed that, the soul of improvisation and live music, and you couldn't even hear music before unless you played it yourself and expressed it yourself, and then you were able to record and distribute music. And you see less and less improvisation and that kind of thing in the parlors and in households. There's a certain death to that that's brought on by technology,
2: or change actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had early on you had people performing in their parlors, and then there was the sale of sheet music that went on because yeah. people would hear that, but they couldn't get the recordings. They would get the sheet music, and then then the recordings and then trying to sound like the recordings. Um, but then the recordings came back, especially in the late 50s and early 60s. You, they captured some of the best performances ever. Um, I'm thinking particularly of jazz where they re- got uh, recordings of people, you know, performing that we wouldn't have had otherwise. It's, it's kind of incredible.
3: It is incredible. Everybody knows those things are addicting, and they'll kill you if you ain't careful. And everybody knew Magtana weren't careful.
1: Oh yeah, that's the second theme that, um... Uh,
3: Magtana's theme,
1: very Side tragic. I was experimenting with this idea of characters having a sound piece I behind them I that combines in the
3: end. I think that's Your cool. Your can't hear certain pitches. That's why you walk around so oblivious to the sounds you make. <laughs> like usual, I didn't know what he was talking about, so I just nodded and pretended I did but I think I fixed
1: it. Man, I specifically remember when I was reading this story the first time, this part got me just so like, whoa, that's, that's awesome because so much of this is comparison with our own culture and daddy doesn't want you talking to that strange alien. guy down by the riverbank and all this stuff. The fact that like smart. maybe humans have things They've about them that we can't sense because our senses are, been are been not able to draw in information out. enough to know. Like these aliens and don't the know that their souls are producing music. It takes something outside to feel that.
2: And then what do they do with it? I mean, it, it has no relevance to their culture.
1: Yeah, they almost don't even need to know it. And that's why the sense didn't develop, because it's part of them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It didn't help them, like, flee from tigers and stuff, or their alien version of that. Like, the only thing that is a, is a threat is hearing it back, like having their identity heard back to them.
2: Yeah, and it, I just think, I think about this all the time, because we live with, most people have a pet and mm-hmm. they have different senses, um, you know. What do we smell like to dogs? They have such, what, 200 different scent receptacles? Mm-hmm. So, you know, they perceive us in a completely different way than we perceive them.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, being able to hear things and everything else. So, it, it you know, just different species have different ways of interacting. I can't imagine what it would be like between humans and aliens.
1: Like their evolutionary uh, developments are their own thing, it's like their own way of coping with that adaptation, it's, it's fascinating.
2: Yeah, well, or cats, uh, you can hide from a cat by sitting still.
1: <laughs> That's amazing, yeah. yeah, it makes sense though, you know.
2: Because they're only attuned to movement, they can mm-hmm. see you, but they they don't really pay
3: attention unless you're moving.
1: Yeah, boy, and do they pay attention then, I mean... <laughs> frozen
3: part of his soul. I ain't never heard of nobody seeing a frozen soul before, and I was afraid it might freeze me, so I screamed real loud. Dirk hit the piece of metal, and Rasty went away. What's the matter? That was Rasty. He smiled then and said, yes, Rasty's song. Isn't it lovely? It's one of the best. So free and happy.
1: That little piece in the background, um, it's kind of an Easter egg I threw in back then. It's a theme for another episode we did called Jelly Park. Park. Um, which was about a jolly bus driver that takes a bunch of people on this magical journey And that's kind of how I saw rasty on this alien planet, you know as a jolly bus driver driving in the wind as described before and uh, So that became his
3: theme very oh, favorite cool. so light and innocent and warm If you just sit a minute, I'll record it. It's soundproof in here, and I'll get even better quality on you than I did on the others No I got up out of the chair and ran for the door. You're not gonna do nothing to me. You froze their souls, and now they're dead. And I don't want to die like that, with clogged pores and no breath.
1: Were you thinking at all about, like, recorded songs and music and the fact that it freezes the moment of the performance and it's different than live living performance of a live show. No,
2: I was actually thinking more on the superstition that um, some native peoples had about people with cameras huh? and how the fact that, you know, early on taking pictures stole the soul.
1: Oh, right. I've even read that like primitive reactions to portrait painting captured a person's soul.
2: Yeah, there are some cultures where they don't want images of the human being at all um, Mm -hmm. and that there's something wrong with that. Um, One of my pet peeves about science fiction is that we are simply not writing our aliens as alien enough because we don't even... The cultures on Earth among humans are so different Mm -hmm. that we don't even capture that, how different that is when we're trying to write, quote, aliens, unquote. And so I think this was one of my first ventures in trying to write something that was truly alien.
1: Yeah. It's neat, because you also make the aliens very easy to identify um, because there's a lot of similarities between their culture and ours, even though they're vastly different similarities as well.
3: I moved closer to the door. I didn't want to run in case he turned one of them boxes on me. Playback. He died after playback. Yep.
1: Oh my (laughs) god. Got to, got to watch out for these people named Dirk. They don't know what they're That's doing. That's
2: right. <laughs> named for daggers.
1: What is it I was going to ask you, um, the aliens die when they murder somebody else too. I think it's mentioned. Um, does that tie in at all to this? Or or am I, am I wrong in saying that? It seems like there was a, a moment where he says, you're the only one that doesn't die when you kill somebody else.
2: Yeah. Um, that They don't have a culture of, you know, trying to find out who the murderer is and everything else because, um, They just die if they killed somebody else. So that kind of prevents prevents you from killing somebody accidentally or or with purpose if you don't plan to die.
1: So it's not like a public execution kind of thing. It's like they die because they're somehow tied in with this overall soul theory thing. Yeah, it's part of the
2: culture or part of the... The biology. The I don't know. Right. No, don't ask me how it works. <laughs> I know. Well, that's all we
1: need to know. It's. I mean, the spirituality and the biology are somehow tied in, and like to go any further would be to go too far. I think. I think. I think that's fascinating enough just you know. to know that that is a tie-in with this culture, which is also a great cop-out.
2: <laughs> yes, it is. Well, it's <laughs> a short story. I think it's like 2,500 words.
1: I know, and you compacted and it so well for that stuff.
3: Man, he didn't have a right and proper soul. And me sometimes in the time between twilight i
1: love how you wrap the story up by the way this kind of monologue here
3: and his strange tubes i catch myself dreaming about what it would be like to have him turn his metal things toward me after all he did say he was gonna do me different i would have loved to see my soul but mostly
1: it's like a, there's got a tree of just knowledge just kind of parallel dirk. to it almost you know like, yeah there's such a burning soul desire a to know what we are
3: can't keep a soul in a box you gotta wear it proud it's gotta be yours not someone else's i hope dirk knows that now and i hope he learned to use his tubes to block out the sing maybe that way his of, soul I right, kind come of
1: combined the themes of the different
3: and characters in the one way to conclusion. strange places searching for it Most of all I wish that Dirk would come back here so I could tell him that I'm sorry I shouldn't have run away after I screamed. I should have stayed and helped him find what part of his soul he was missing and I didn't I wonder if that means that my song I ain't light and innocent and warm no more. It bothers me that I ain't got no way to find out.
1: What a great closing line, too. You know, to to not know uh, a way to find out, which would Ooh, have been a recording you. device.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Did that, uh, just out of curiosity, and I know it was a long time ago when you wrote it, but when do these kind of ending moments hit you in the writing process? Do you kind of know what's going to happen in the end from the very beginning, or do you get inspired by the story as you write the story?
2: I just write the story, and it ends. Um, if I know the ending, I'm usually wrong. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's fascinating.
2: I think I'm going one direction, and then, no, I end up somewhere else completely different.
1: And this one was just very organic for you. I mean, did you crank this out in a day?
2: No, I wrote it, I think, in like an hour or two.
1: No kidding.
2: Wow. Yeah, it came out really fast.
1: Mm-hmm. Are those some of the best stories, the ones that come so naturally and quick?
2: Well, the writer answer is yes. Um... <laughs> the editor answer. The reader answer is, mm-hmm. eh, it doesn't matter how you wrote it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it can be it could be the hardest thing it, to write ever, and it'll probably still be the same quality as something you wrote in an hour, mm-hmm. as long as you don't monkey with it. Uh, too many writers just rewrite and tinker and tinker and don't trust the process. Mm-hmm. Um, our storytelling brain has been around since if you were one of those kids lucky enough to have parents who read to you. You've had story fed to you since you were pre-verbal, so we know more about story than we think we do. Hmm. But your critical brain has been around since you were, oh, maybe 10. Um, So it's 10 years behind your storytelling brain. So I tell writers to trust their storytelling brain and try not to rewrite it with their younger, less able, critical brain.
1: Hmm. That's very interesting. What other pieces of like random writing advice would you kind of throw out through your extensive experience in in writing successful stories and editing successful stories? Other things maybe that pop up as like key points?
2: Well, I think one of them is um, don't listen to your copy editor Um, (laughs) because, I mean, copy editors are great and Mm -hmm. you need them. I just was going over a story that's going to be upcoming in Fiction River, and the writer changed the name of the character midstream. You need a, a copy editor for things like that. But mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to punctuation and everything else, if you already know the rules, then you can break them. And the thing about punctuation, I got a, a blog post that's coming up about this, is that once you're past that, the advanced level of punctuation is punctuation is sound.
1: Mm.
2: And you probably know that, because you read stories, and so you're paying attention to where the commas are and the dashes mm-hmm. and everything else, but writers usually don't, and they're trying to follow the grammar rules, which just makes their voice sound like everybody else's voice. Punctuation is one of those things that gives your writing voice strength.
1: You're right, like semicolons matter, and like and spaces matter, and sentence structure matters, because, this, like you said, the second step is, I mean, how does it sound like in your head and out loud? I always read stories out loud when I'm trying to do, um, get through the slush pile because it seems to make all the difference.
2: Well, it does because um, so many writers you know, follow all the rules. So their voice sounds just like everybody else's voice. And I would assume that with you're doing a podcast and you want to do stories through the podcast, you want them to sound different from each other. Mm-hmm. You want them to have a point of view, a perspective and a voice.
1: Do you think that your radio producing, uh, I don't know if you're a production editor or what you were doing in radio, but did that influence you as a writer at all on your writing technique? Oh,
2: hugely. Um, I was a news director and I taught radio writing for mm-hmm. years. Um, and the first thing I did when I taught uh, writers how to write for radio was I had them write something. Mm-hmm. And then I sat them in a sound stage and I made them read it. And then I played it back for them. And they would hear how awful it was. And then I would explain to them that 90% of communication is not verbal. Mm -hmm. And so they needed to learn how to write so that they would put that 90% back into their prose. And ooh, half of them left at that point. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The ones that stayed learned how to write because you have to put in information, but you can't put it in in a way that's dull or boring or anything else. You have to learn how to write it in an interesting fashion for the ear. And I think that's why I always had a strong voice in fiction because I was doing that simultaneously. I think my first, oh, 10 years of writing fiction, I was also working in radio.
1: Well, I just want to recap what you said, too, about so, so what you would do with these students is you um you would listen to their their story and you would record it and play it back to them. And for the, a lot of them, it would freeze them and perhaps kill them and make them quit the class. Which... <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> so there you go.
2: The problem is that once you it's a lot like saying once you've found your voice, uh, you can't hear it because yeah. it's the voice that's been in your head from the beginning of time. So it sounds normal to you. So once you get to the place where your writing feels dull and boring to you, you've probably found your own voice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) To where you can't even hear it because it just permeates your life. That's amazing.
2: Well, it's been in your head since you were a little kid. So that's the way you see the world, but that's not the way anybody else sees the world. It must be such
1: a challenge in today's day and age with social media and the constant noise and barrage of things that you could be distracted by and you could be soaking up that would influence or you know move you in different directions for your writing. Um, I wonder uh, if there's anything to do about that, to, to be able to focus on things that matter uh, to your writing as opposed to just soaking in every single thing that pops up on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on Twitter and just being addicted to this kind of information age. Yeah,
2: well, you know, Facebook, you can't get on there today so yeah we're, we're recording this the day facebook went down who knows if it comes back
1: wait facebook went down while we were recording you
2: don't, you don't know that facebook's been down for 12 hours today
1: no way. well i'm proud that i didn't know that because that shows I like it shows how little i got on facebook but also i'm terrified for our species now
2: <laughs> yeah i don't know what we're gonna do facebook and instagram are, gonna are it, down really yeah
1: wow a terrorist
2: hit us i don't know but it's been all day
1: so you're saying we have to rely on our own voices now? I mean it's can't no, be No Twitter's still up. Oh, Twitter's still there to save us.
2: Yeah, yeah, we're okay. (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) Well, what other projects do you have coming up and appearances and things that you want folks to know about? What's your uh, your blog? I think people would be really interested to know about your blog that's giving writing advice and giving updates on your projects.
2: I do a blog every Thursday. Actually, it goes live late on Wednesday night um, about the publishing industry and a little bit about craft. and It's for writers mostly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been doing it now since 2009, believe it or not. Wow. I know. I'm kind of stunned. It's and amazing. I also do a free short story on my website every Monday. Hmm. So yeah, uh, it, it's only up for a week, and then it goes away.
1: Wow, and that's I, a cool uh, concept. So it, it builds a sense of immediacy.
2: Yeah, you have to catch it in that week, or, or you might have missed it.
1: Is Chris writes Chris with a K your your main website? Yep. Yeah, and, I, and you do a good job of keeping up with, with that. But I do love your fiction, too. That's always going to be... Sing is always going to have a special place in my heart, even though I love your other stuff that you've done, the Travel Cast, and we're going to get you on the show again um, for some other stuff. If you got anything that's kind of stewing up in the brain or something that you crank out for Free Fiction Monday, and uh, you're like, you know, who's a weird guy, a weird podcast owner that would maybe love this story, Norm Sherman, send send this bad boy his way.
2: Yeah, you got me thinking about writing for the ear again, so I'm thinking yeah, about that's it. my
1: deal right there, you know. And then sell it to somebody else afterwards. That's the cool thing about this whole this whole market.
2: Oh yeah, it's fun.
1: It is. Well, thanks. I know you got some stuff to do. Thanks so much for um, you know, spending some time with me here. This has been a great conversation. And uh, I think this is one of my favorite stories of all time. It was awesome to talk to you about it.
2: Well, thank you. And thanks for thinking of doing this. This was fun. Until next time, Chris. All right. We'll talk later. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye.